0: Thank <music> you. As the waning light of summer gives in into the prolonged twilight of autumn and the warm embrace of september sun gives into the crisp chill of october's rust we turn our attention now more acutely to the high strangeness that goes bump in the night just remember there are things out there in the darkness so lock your doors and throw up your protective wards From the jack-o'-lantern's twisted grimace to the roots of all things Brothers Grimm, it's almost trick-or-treat time again. And although we're technically on a break from season three, the monsters in your walls, the ghosts in your attics, and the goblins in your garden are just now getting up to their ghoulish delights. So we're here to remind you, everything is not okay. Dim the lights, light a candle, and come dine with the devils, walk with the zombies, read the forbidden books, and take pictures of the gremlins. I'll be your host for this evening's unholy adventures. My name is Alan Bishop, writer, historian, tinker storyteller and the alchemist of indiana's black forest and you're listening to no in fact you're experiencing if you have ghosts you have everything from wikipedia.org. James Whitcomb Riley was a poet who achieved national fame in the United States during the late 19th and early 20th century. Little Orphan Annie is one of Whitcomb's most well-known poems, originally published in the Indianapolis Journal on November 15, 1885. Under the title, The Elf Child, the poem was inspired by a girl named Mary Alice Alley Smith. Mary Alice Smith was born near Liberty Union County, Indiana, 25th of September, 1850. She lived on a small farm with her parents until, as one story goes, both parents died when she was about nine years old. Some stories say that Mary's mother died when she was very young, and her father, Peter Smith, died when she was 10. Other evidence points to her father's being incarcerated at the time. Whatever the cause, she was considered an orphan, Mary's uncle, John Rittenhouse came to Union County and took the young orphan to his home in Greenfield, where he dressed her in black and bound her out to earn her board and keep. Mary Alice was taken in by Captain Reuben Riley as a bound servant to help his wife, Elizabeth Riley, with the housework and her four children, John, James, Elva May, and Alex. As was customary at that time, she worked alongside the family to earn her board. In the evening hours, she often told stories to the younger children, including Riley. The family called her a guest, not a servant, and treated her like she was part of their family. Smith did not learn she was the inspiration for the character until the 1910s when she visited with Riley. Riley had previously presented a fictionalized version of Mary Alice Smith in his story, Where Is Mary Alice Smith? Published in the Indianapolis Journal of the 30th of September, 1882, in it, Mary Alice arrives at her benefactor family's home, and wastes no time before telling the children a grisly story of murder by decapitation, and then later introduces them to her soldier friend Dave, who is soon killed upon going off to war. The plot of this short story was heavily incorporated into the 1918 movie adaptation, as well as Johnny Gruel's 1921 storybook both The Elf Child and Whereas Mary Alice Smith were printed in book form for the first time in 1885 in The Boss Girl. The Elf Child kept its original title in its first two printings, but Riley decided to change its title to Little Orphan Alley in an 1889 printing. The printing house incorrectly cast the typeset during the printing, unintentionally renaming the poem to Little Orphan Annie. Riley, at first, Contacted the printing house to have the error corrected, but decided to keep the misprint because of the poem's growing popularity. When reprinted in the Orphan Annie book in 1908, the poem was given an additional introductory verse Little Orphan Annie, She Knows Riddles, Rhymes, and Things. During the 1910s and 1920s, the title became the inspiration for the names of Little Orphan Annie and the Raggedy Ann doll, created by fellow Indiana native Johnny Gruel. The rhyme's popularity led to its being reprinted many times, and it was later compiled with a number of other children's poems in an illustrated book and sold. The verses of the poem detail the scary stories told by Annie when her housework was done, repeating the phrase, And the goblins that get you if you don't watch out. It was popular among children, and many of the letters Whitcomb received from children commented on the poem. It remains a favorite among children in Indiana, and is often associated with Halloween celebrations. Riley was known as the Hoosier poet, and wrote the rhymes in a 19th century Hoosier dialect, as one of his most well-known poems. Little Orphan Annie served as the inspiration for the comic strip, Little Orphan Annie, which itself inspired a Broadway musical, several films, and many radio and television programs. James Wickham Riley even visited Salem, Indiana one time where he was mobbed by a crowd on the square and harassed to such a degree that he decided to take to a balcony along the old Knights of Pythias building to recount his famous poetry. There's just something a little special about a glass of who's your apple brandy in October while reading Little Orphan Annie. Little Orphan Annie's come to our house to stay and wash up the cups and saucers up and brush the crumbs away and shoo the chickens off the porch and dust the hearth and sweep and make the fire and bake the bread and earn her board and keep. And all us other children, when the supper things is done, well we set around the kitchen fire and has the mostest fun. A listen to the witches' tales that Annie Tells About, and the goblins that get you if you don't watch out. Once there was a little boy who wouldn't say his prayers, and when he went to bed at night away up the stairs, his mammy heard him holler, and his daddy heard him bawl, and when they turned the keyvers down, he wasn't there at all, and they seeked him in the rafter room, and cubby hole and press, and seeked him up the chimney flue, and everywhere's I guess, but all they ever found was this his pants and roundabouts, and the goblins'll get you if you don't watch out, and one time a little girl, who'd all laughs and grin and make fun of everyone, and all her blood and kin. And once when they was company, and old folks was there, she mocked them and shocked them, and she said she didn't care. And this that she kicked her heels, and turned to run and hide, they was two great big black things, a-standin' by her side, and they snatched her through the ceiling, for she knowed what she's about. And the goblins will get you, if you don't watch out. And little orphan Annie says, "When the blaze is blue, and the lamp wicker sputters, and the wind goes woo, and you hear the crickets quit, and the moon is gray, and the lightning bugs and dew is all squinched away, you better mind your parents and your teachers, found in dear, and cherish them that loves you, and dry the orphan's tear, and help the poor and needy, ones that clusters all about, or the goblins'll get you." if you don't watch out. I muttered, tapping at my chamber door. Only this, and nothing more. Ah, distinctly I remember it was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow. Vainly I had sought to borrow, from my books surcease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden, whom the angels named Lenore, nameless here forevermore. And the silken sad uncertain, rustling of each purple curtain, thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terror, never felt before, so that now, to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating, "Tis some visitor, entreating entrance at my chamber door. Some late visitor, entreating entrance at my chamber door. This it is, and nothing more. Presently my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer. Sir, said I, "or madame, doubting dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared dream before but the silence was unbroken and the darkness gave no token and the only word there spoken was the whispered word lenore this i whispered and an echo murmured back the word lenore merely this and nothing more back into the chamber turning all my soul within me burning Soon again, I heard a tapping, somewhat louder than before. Surely, said I, surely that is something at my window lattice. Let me see then what thread is, and this mystery explore. Let my heart be still a moment, and this mystery explore. Tis the wind, and nothing more. Open here, I flung the shutter, when with many a flirt and flutter, and there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obeisance made he, not a minute stopped or stayed he, but with mine of lord or lady perched above my chamber door, perched upon a bust of palace, just above my chamber door, perched and sets, and nothing more. Then this ebony bird beguiling my sad fancy into smiling. By the grave and stern decorum of the countenance it wore. Though thy crest be shorn and shaven, thou, I said, art sure no craven, ghastly, grim, and ancient raven wandering from the nightly shore. Tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's plutonian shore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Much I marveled this ungainly fowl to hear discourse so plainly, though its answer, little meaning, little relevance it bore. For we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door, bird or beast above the sculptured bust above his chamber door, with such name as nevermore. But the raven, sitting lonely on the placid bust spoke only, that one word as if his soul in that one word he did outpour nothing further than he uttered a feather than he fluttered till i scarcely more than muttered other friends have flown before on the morrow he will leave me as my hopes have flown before then the bird said nevermore startled at the stillness but the raven still beguiling, all my sad soul in the smiling. Straight I willed a cushioned seat in front of bird and bust and door. Then upon the velvet sinking, I betook myself to linking, fancy into fancy, thinking, what this ominous bird of yore, what this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt and ominous bird of yore meant in croaking nevermore. This I set engaged in guessing but no syllable expressing, to the foul whose fiery eyes now burned into my bosom's core. This and more I set divining with my head at ease reclining on the cushion's velvet lining that the lamplight gloated over, but whose velvet violet lining with the lamplight gloating o'er, she shall press. Ah, nevermore. Then methought the air grew denser, Perfumed from an unseen censer, swung by seraphim whose footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor. Wretch, I cried, that God hath lent thee by these angels, he has sent thee respite, respite, and nepenthe from thy memories of Lenore. Quoth, oh, quaff this kind penth, and forget this lost Lenore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, Said I, thing of evil, profit still, if bird or devil. Whether tempter since, or whether tempest tossed, thee here ashore. Desolate, yet all undaunted, on this desert land enchanted. On this home by horror haunted. Tell me truly, I implore. Is there, is there balm in Gilead? Tell me, tell me, I implore. Quoth the raven. Nevermore Prophet, said I, thing of evil, Prophet still of bird or devil, By that heaven that bends above us, By that God we both adore, Tell the soul sorrow laden, If within the distant Aden, It shall clasp a saint at maiden Whom the angels name Lenore, Clasp a rare and radiant maiden Whom the angels name Lenore, Quoth the raven. Nevermore. Be that word our sign of parting, bird, or friend, I shrieking upstarting. Get thee back into the tempest and the night's plutonian shore. Leave no black plume as a token of that lie thy soul has spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken. Quit the bust above my door. Take thy beak from out thy heart, and take thy form from off my door. Quote the raven. Nevermore. And the raven, never flitting, still is setting, still is setting on the pallid bust of palace just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming, and the lamplight o'er him streaming throws a shadow on the floor. And my soul from out the shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore. True, nervous, very, very dreadful nervous I'd been, and I am. But why will you say that I'm mad? The disease has sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. And above all, was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all the things in heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell, How then, am I mad? Hearken, and observe now healthily, how calmly I can tell you the whole story. It's impossible to say how first the idea really entered my brain, but once I conceived of it, it haunted me day and night. Object, there was none. Passion, there was none. I love that old man. He had never wronged me. He never gave me insult. I had no desire for his gold. I think it was his eye. Yeah, that's what it was. One of his eyes resembled that of a vulture. A pale blue eye with a film over it. When he looked upon me with it, he just felt my blood run cold. So gradually I made up my mind to take the life of the old man and thus rid myself of the eye forever. Now, the point is, you think of me as mad. But madmen know nothing. But you really should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded and how cautious how much foresight I put into this. With what dissimulation I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him. And every night, right around midnight, I'd turn the latch of his door and open it, as gently as I could. And then when I made an opening sufficient for my head, put in a dark lantern, all closed so that no light would shine out of it and then I'd peek my head in oh you'd have laughed to have seen how I did this I moved so slow so very, very slow that I might not disturb the old man sleeping it took me an hour to place my whole head in the opening so far that I could see him really see him as he laid upon his bed (laughs) would a madman have been so wise as this and then, when my head was well in the room I undid the lantern just as cautiously oh so cautiously because the hinges creaked I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon that vulture eye And I did this for seven nights. Every night. Just at midnight. But I found that eye was always closed. And so it was impossible to do the work. For it wasn't the old man that vexed me, but that eye, that evil eye. And every morning, when the day broke, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone and inquiring how he had passed the night. So you see, he had been a very profound old man. Indeed, to suspect that every night, just at 12, I looked in upon him while he slept. About the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious when I opened the door Watches men at hand moves a lot more quickly than did mine. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers, of my sagacity. I couldn't really contain my feelings of triumph. To think that there I was, opening the door just a little at a time, and he not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea, and perhaps he heard me, for he did move on the bed suddenly, as if he was startled. Now, you might think that I drew back, but no. His room was as black as pitch with the thick darkness, because the shutters were closed through fear of robbers. And so I knew he couldn't see the opening of the door, and I kept pushing it on steadily. Steadily, I had my head in, and was about to open the lantern when my thumb slipped upon the tin fastening, and the old man, he sprang up in the bed crying out, who's there? I kept still, I didn't say a word, for a whole hour, I didn't move a muscle, and in the meantime, I did not hear him lie down, he was still sitting up in the bed listening, just as I've done, night after night, hearkening to the death, watches in the wall. Presently I heard a slight groan, and I knew it was a groan of mortal terror. It wasn't a groan of pain or grief. Oh no. It was a low, stifled sound that comes from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew that sound well, many a night, just at right around midnight, when all the world slept, it's welled up from my own body, deepening with its dreadful echo, the terrors that would distract me, I say I knew it well, I knew what the old man felt, and I pitied him, although I did chuckle at heart. I knew he'd been lying awake ever since the first slight noise when he had turned in the bed his fears had been growing since upon him he'd been trying to fancy them causeless but he couldn't he'd been saying to himself it's nothing but the wind in the chimney it's only a mouse crossing the floor or it's just a cricket which has made a single chirp yeah He's been trying to comfort himself with these suppositions, but he'd found all that in vain. It was all in vain because death, in approaching him, had stalked with this black shadow before him and enveloped the victim. And it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel, although he neither saw nor heard, to feel the presence of my head within the room. Watching him When I'd waited a long time, pretty patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open little 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 crevice in the lantern. So I opened it, and I mean, you can't imagine how stealthily, just how stealthily, until at length a single little ray. Like the thread of the spider, shot from out of the crevice and fell upon that vulture eye. It was open. Wide open, man. And I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctness. Man, it was just a dull blue. The hideous veil over it. It, it chilled me to the marrow in my bones. But I couldn't see anything else in the old man's face or his person. Honestly, I think I kind of directed the ray by instinct precisely upon the damned eye. And now I've not told you that what you mistake for madness is really... Maybe an over-acuteness of the senses? Now, I will say there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound. Kind of like a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound. Well, it was the beating of his heart. My fury as the beating of a drum stimulates the soldier in the courage. But even yet, I refrained and I kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon that eye. Ugh. Meantime, hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker and louder and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder every moment. You know what I'm saying? I told you that I'm nervous. So I am. And now at the dead hour of the night, amid the dreadful silence of that old house, so strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable, uncontrollable terror. Yet for some minutes longer, I held myself back and stood still. But the beating, it grew louder and louder thought he was gonna have a heart attack. Now a new anxiety sort of seized me. That sound would be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come. So with a loud yell, I threw open that lantern and I leaped into the room. He shrieked once, but only once. In an instant, I dragged him onto the floor, pulled the heavy bed over on him. Then smiled to find the deed so far done. But for many minutes the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This didn't really vex me any. It wouldn't be heard through the wall. In a little time it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed, checked out the corpse. Yeah. He was dead, stone dead. placed my hand upon the heart and held it there many minutes. There wasn't any pulse. He was stone dead. That eye, that wasn't gonna trouble me no more. If you still think I'm mad, you won't think so when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. as a night waned and I worked hastily but in silence honestly I I dismembered the corpse cut off his head arms and legs then I took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber and put it all in there put the boards back I thought I was being real clever. Real cunning. Wouldn't no human be able to notice this. No human eye could see what I'd done. Not even that cloudy blue. Ugh. I couldn't have detected anything wrong. There wasn't anything to wash out. No stain of any kind. No blood spot. i have been real careful tub had caught all that <laughs> when I'd made an end to these labors it was four o'clock still dark as midnight as the bell sounded the hour there came a knocking at the street door I went down to open it with a light heart for I didn't really have anything to fear anymore there entered three men who introduced themselves with perfect suavity as officers of the police. Apparently a shriek had been heard by a neighbor during the night. Suspicion of foul play had been aroused. Information had been lodged at the police office. And they, of course, had been deputed to search the premises. I smiled. I mean, what do I gotta fear? Bade the gentleman welcome. I told him that shriek was my own. I'd had a dream. The old man I mentioned was absent in the country. Took my new visitors all over the house. I let them search, and search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasures, secure, undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs in the room desired them here to rest from their fatigues, while I myself, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot, right above where I'd left that eye. Once the police were satisfied, my manner had convinced them, I was at ease. They sat and I answered happily. They chatted of familiar things. But before too long, I felt myself getting pale and wished that they'd just go ahead and get out of there. I had a headache and I fancied a ringing in my ears. But there they sat and just kept talking. That ringing became more distinct. It kept up and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and it gained definitiveness until eventually I found that the noise was not in my ears. No doubt I probably grew pretty pale, but I talked more fluently and with a heightened voice. And yet the sound increased and what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound similar as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I had to gasp for my breath, yet the officers really didn't hear it, talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I rose and argued about trifles in a high key and with violent gesticulations, but the noise steadily increased. Why wouldn't they just leave? paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides. As if I was excited to fury by the observations of the men. But the noise steadily increased. God, what could I do? I raved, I swore, swung the chair upon which I'd been sitting, and grated it upon the boards. But no matter what, that noise was louder than any of it and it kept increasing growing louder and louder and louder and yet they just chatted pleasantly and smiled I mean, is it possible that they didn't hear it? God no, there's no way, they had to hear it they suspected hell, they knew they are making a mockery of me my horror my terror I thought that and I still think it but anything was better than this agony anything was more tolerable than this derision I couldn't bear their hypocritical smiles any longer I felt like I had to scream or die and I feel that way again, it just gets louder and louder. Nobody else can hear it. Villains, that's what I called them. That's what I screamed at them. Symbol no more. I did it. Pull up these fucking planks. It's the beating of his hideous heart.